May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing as an offering of thanks and praise to you uh, in your sight. Jesus Christ, your Lord, we pray this. Amen. The ending of their story is fascinating. The middle is frustrating and maybe even a little bit infuriating. The beginning of their story is, well, rather forgettable. And so it makes sense that we start there. Their story is one of of a family, a mother and a father and two sons. A family that is by no means perfect. But you might say they're the closest thing to perfect this world has ever seen in a family. It's a family that loves their God. It's the story of a mother and a father who who knew God's picture for the picture-perfect family. And they raised their sons to love their God. They raised their sons to, to give to their God with their time, their talents, and their treasures. It was a family who was in church every single Sunday. It was a family who was respected in their community. It was two sons who, who grew up and had wonderful, beautiful families of their own. And despite the differences that these two brothers had, they remained close throughout their lives. And even though their personalities were different, they went into two different careers. One was a farmer, one was a rancher. Both brothers were quite successful in their life. They did what God told them to do. They listened to God when he spoke. They walked with God But this beginning of their story is rather forgettable because of what happened in the middle that is so frustrating, maybe even infuriating. And Well, I don't want you to forget the beginning because I really want you to really, really appreciate the end. And so we're going to start in the the beginning to look at a story of of something that didn't have to be. A story of sibling rivalry that was only sibling rivalry because the brother could see it. Because the brother was filled with jealousy and anger and pain. It's a story that you're familiar with if you've been in the church for even a minute. It's a story that takes place on just the fourth chapter of the Bible. It's a story of the family that Adam and Eve had, the story of two brothers, the very first brothers, the very first people born of people, the story of Cain and Abel. We're in Genesis chapter 4, and if you're not there already, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to the very, very beginning, the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, in just the fourth chapter. We're going to start at verse 1 of chapter 4. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles and also your worship guide. There's a there's a sermon guide therein that I'm going to encourage you to fill out and also hold on to for your life groups this coming week. We're in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where Moses, who wrote these books, said this. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Here we see Eve, the very, very first mother, the mother of all of the living, give birth for the very first time. And what is her reaction? Well, it's a song of thanks. It's a song of praise, which isn't unlike any other song of thanks and praise that any parents would have for the gift of a child. But what makes 
Eve's thanks to the Lord unique is something that the English doesn't really bring out very well. It's, it is the song of praise and thanks from Eve to God directly connected to what God promised her just a few verses prior. In Genesis chapter 3, we read of Adam and Eve's fall into sin, and we also read of God's promise to Eve that, that he would send one from her, one of her own seed, an offspring from her who would be her savior. Eve thanks keeps his promises. Thank you for being a God who is faithful to me, who has kept his promise to, to bring forth my savior. And in, in a way, she couldn't have been more right about what it meant to have Cain, but in a way she couldn't have imagined how perhaps more than anyone, Cain needed the savior. Verse 2 said, Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept the flocks and Cain worked the soil, the first rancher and the first farmer. Verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soils an offering to the Lord and Abel also brought an offering. Let's just hit pause for another second. During our sermon series, Family Photo, we're looking at God's picture for the picture-perfect family. And even though right now, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel are experiencing the consequences of falling into sin, what we see is a family that's real, a family that is not perfect, but is, is trying to live to God's ideal for family. We see a mother and a father who have brought their children up in the Lord, who have taught them to worship their God, to bring their offerings to God, to give gifts, to give their time to Him, to do what God says. We see obedient children. We see encouraging fathers. We see loving and submissive wives. In Eve, we see a, a husband who is like God to his family. And I want you to just look at this picture because very soon the facade is going to fade and, and the picture of God's ideal family is going to break apart and it's all going to be because of one thing, anger. And that's what we're going to look at today is how anger so affects families, how family feuds break apart God's picture in an insidiously destructive way. Verse 3 says, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the of the fruits of the soils an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering to the to the Lord, fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And so, so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. If you're following along in the sermon guide, that's our first question. Why? Why did God look with favor on Abel and not Cain? I mean, is that the God that we have? Is that the God of, an old te- of the Old Testament? Someone who says, I like you, but I do not like you. Is that it? Do we have a God who, who picks people who he loves, who, who, who he likes, who he wants to bless, who he wants to show favor to? Is it about what they brought? Is it about the fact that we have a God who likes meat and not vegetables? I don't think that's it. No, just like today, God is not concerned at all with what is brought. He's not concerned with who brings it. Now, the reason that God showed favor to Abel and not Cain has nothing to do with what was brought, but rather with how it was brought. 
with how Cain brought his offering and how Abel brought his. And you say, yeah, pastor, that makes sense. But where is that in the story of Cain and Abel? I don't see it in the text. But look again with me. Cain said to do. That's what God said to do. The soil. Basically, Cain brought something. Because that's what mom and dad said to do. That's what God said to do. But Abel, Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Literally, Abel brought the fat ones of the firstborn. He brought the best ones. He brought the top shelf steaks to his God because he was giving to his God. You think about it, there's only two reasons that you can bring an offering to God. There's only two reasons why people in the Old Testament sacrifice. There's only two reasons that people in the New Testament drop money into a collection plate. One is to be like Abel. It is to give glory to God. It is to give thanks to God for his miraculous promise that he will send a Savior. It is to give thanks for all the blessings that God gives. You can either give to give glory to God or be like Cain and take glory for yourself. It's to expect that God bless me, to give me things because I give to him. Makes you think a little bit about how and the why of we give. That's why Cain didn't have the Lord's favor. He gave to give himself glory. And so God and Cain, they have a little chat. And in verse 6, the Lord speaks with Cain. He said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you. But you must rule over it. In verse 7 of Genesis chapter 4, God speaks to Cain. And he speaks to all of us. And he gives us a remarkable picture. He gives us a remarkable picture of the nature of sin. And in particular, the sin that Cain was struggling with. The sin many of us struggle with. Anger. He says it like this. He says, Cain, look, anger, sin, it's crouching at your door. The vivid image that he's bringing up is this picture. It is the picture of a beast, a lion, a tiger, something coiled, powerful, ready to pounce on you and take you out. God is saying, this is sin. It's no different than what God inspired his apostle Peter to write in the New Testament where he said the devil, the one who tempts us to sin, is what? Prowling around like a roaring lion looking for something to devour. God says, this is the nature of sin. So often we think of sin as just an action, just a thing that we do. But he said, sin is a powerful force. It's a living being and it has a desire. Don't let it attack you, to destroy you, to devour you. Don't let it. In this vivid image, God gives us actually three three principles, if you will, three encouragements as we think about, in particular, that sin of anger. And the first one is to, is to think of it as this. Anger is a crouching beast. He says it's crouching at your door. You know, why does he paint sin as this kind of picture? Well, well, think about this. If you are walking through a jungle or you are out on an African safari and you see a beast, you see a lion or a tiger just standing there, what are you going to do? You're going to get ahead of it. You're going to walk away. You're going to see it and, and maybe get out a few feet in front of it so it, it can't hurt you. But now picture if you're walking through that place 
and there is a crouching lion, a crouching tiger. You don't see it. You're vulnerable. And the more vulnerable you are, the more unsure you are about its location or where it is or if it's even there, the more likely you are to die. It's a crouching sin. That's often what anger is. It's a a sin that is minimized. It's a sin that's hiding. And it's often minimized and hiding because of the way we think of it. We think, oh, it's just my temper gets away from me sometimes. Oh, it's just this thing that, yeah, I got power to handle and control, but sometimes I don't. As long as you parent your children thinking that, oh, it's okay to get angry at them if, you know, they're kids and they do something stupid. It's okay to hold a grudge against my spouse because, you know what, that's taking the moral high road to, to let them know that they did something wrong and they can't do that. As long as you come home from from work or come home from an activity and, and you're stressed and you let people know it through short and snippy words because, hey, that's just a symptom of stress. As long as you do that, you're in denial and you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable from this sin that is crouching at your door and wants to do one thing alone, and that is pounce. That is to pounce and have its way with you. This is the picture of sin in your life. As long as you think of it as, well, you know, something that's out there, it's, it's minimizing it. Recognize it for what it is. Sin is a crouching beast. Anger is a crouching beast. And the second point God says is that anger originates in you. Back to a point I said just as me. But God says, no, there's this. It's a thing that I do towards someone or someone does towards me. But God says, no, that, that's not the nature of anger. Anger is something that desires to be in you, to take you over, to rule in you. And that's why you need to rule over it. James, Jesus' own brother, put it this way in chapter 4 of, of his, his letter. He said this. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. And so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Think about your own life. What causes fights and quarrels among your family members? Oh, you'd like to think it's something something silly that they did, something to make you mad, but where does it start? That you didn't have them treat you the way you wanted. That you didn't have them do for you what you wanted. Where do fights and quarrels come to? God is saying to Cain, it comes from you. It comes from your heart. It wasn't Abel's fault that you got angry. It wasn't God's fault that you got angry. It's your fault. And here's the next point. God makes it after Cain said to his brother, Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. Just like his parents, Cain took something that wasn't his to take. He took control of his own life. He lived the way he wanted to. And then he took something he couldn't replace. He took his brother's, he took his brother's own life. 
This is the point that God makes when he's talking to Cain about the nature of sin. He says, anger, anger takes our life before it takes others' lives. The reason God came to Cain before he committed this crime was to plead with him, was to get him to recognize that he could stop this, that he could, he could rule over this crouching beast that is looking to jump from the door and have its way with you. God knows the power of sin. He knows that it's a living thing. It knows that it's something that long before it acts out to others, it's eating and destroying and devouring all the good that is in you. The good that God has placed in you through your baptism, through hearing the word, the joy that God gives you, the peace that God gives you, the love, the faith that God gives you, long before anger from you. It's someone else's life. It takes control of your life and takes these things from you. That's why Jesus said this in, in our gospel re- lesson. We read it just before. He said, you heard it said that people long ago shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. He adds to it. He says, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment as well. Again, anyone who says to their brother or sisters, Raka, which is, Insert any bad name that you don't want to be called. That's Raka. Anyone who says that to a family member is, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, even, even you fool, to a brother or a sister will be in danger of the fire of hell. What Jesus is saying is that first and foremost, anger that originates in you will take your life long before it acts out and takes another person's life. If I haven't made it clear already, what Jesus is talking about, what I'm talking about with this sermon, what God's word is talking about, is sins against not just murder, but sins against the fifth commandment, which add, yes, you shall not murder with guns and knives, but you shouldn't murder with the daggers of anger that destroy family. Jesus closes it by this. He says, therefore... If you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and give, offer your gift. What Jesus is saying is if you're at church and you remember you're angry at someone, leave church, go away, come back after you've taken care of that anger, after you've ruled over that anger. I don't want any of you to get up and leave church this morning because I don't know if you guys would come back. But what I do want you to do is think about this. You remember anyone you've shown anger to? Specifically anyone you've been angry to in your family. Because it sends a shiver in my spine to say it, but, but showing anger in your words towards your kids well, is murdering your own children. Holding on to a grudge against someone in your family because, because they did something to you and you withholding the love of Christ from them that Christ has shown you, it's, it's destroying your relationships in the most destructive way. It's murdering your marriages to call names, to even think names and let the anger fester in your heart. God says, go. He says, take care of it before you come to worship me. Because most importantly, on top of it, be in my family. I don't want you to destroy your family on top of it. That's why God came 
to Cain. That's why he comes to us with this story that's frustrating, even infuriating, to admit that that is what I do. God came to Cain. I'm in verse 9 of chapter 4. And he asked him, where is your brother Abel? And Cain blames someone else. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Essentially, he says, God, aren't you able to go find him? Aren't you able to look after him? And the anger that Cain couldn't master mastered him. And he destroyed his brother's life. He took his brother's life. And that same anger takes our, our families. It takes our friends. And even takes churches. This is the middle of their story. How's that for a story to start scripture and set you on your heel? A story of not just murder, but a perhaps the worst kind of murder. Fratricide. Murder of your own family, your own blood. It makes the beginning of their story rather forgettable. Because the middle of their story is so frustrating. And yet I said the end of their story is remarkably fascinating. And can I tell you why? It's because this isn't really Cain's story. It's not really Abel's story or even Adam and Eve's story. This is God's story. And this is God's story of the beginning history of his plan of salvation. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 writes this. Can I read it to you? Paul writes this. He said, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to sin increases through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what our God does, where sin increases from the moment sin happened in the Garden of Eden to the moment sin occurred between Cain and Abel. Even in Cain's heart, God's grace increases all the more. So even before death took Abel's life, well, God's love, his grace, might be made known. We read through the story of Cain and Abel, but I want to invite you to look at it one more time with me and read it not as Cain and Abel's story, but as God's story with a fascinating ending. Listen, in the beginning, it said, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin's crouching at your door. It's desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now look, when God comes to you and he asks you questions, I can be sure about this. God is not looking for more information. God who knows all things, even your heart, when he comes and he asks a question, he is not looking to see how you feel. He knows how you feel. When God comes and asks questions, like the way he talks to his son Cain, He's not looking to understand your heart. He's trying to get you to understand your heart. I think Genesis chapter 4 is one of the most amazing pictures of God's amazing grace. 
You think about it, Cain is angry at God. He's angry at Abel and he's angry at everyone because God doesn't accept him, because God doesn't approve of his offerings. And instead of God coming to Cain and saying, who do you think you are? Do you not realize who I am? Do you not realize that I am the God who created this world? Do you not realize that I am the God who gave you everything, including your life? Who do you think you are to be so arrogant? No, he comes to him And he talks to him like a friend. He says, Cain, I see you downcast. He says, man, I see you're sad. The idiom in Hebrew is is really interesting. He says, your face has fallen, which means I see you're depressed. Why are you depressed? What he's doing is is hoping. He's pleading. He's, He's even prodding with Cain to get him to see, yeah, why am I angry? Why am I sad? I have you as my friend, God. I have you as as my heavenly father. I have you who's blessed me and given you all things. You're right. I'm sorry for my attitude. I'm sorry for my arrogance. And even then, even then when he pays no attention to him, he comes to him again and he says, even after he's murdered, he says, Cain, where is your brother Abel? Once more, he's just begging him to say, listen, just admit it. Just admit you're wrong. He goes to extremes to win this sinner back, this murderer back, and says, listen, Cain, I know your anger got the best of you. Just tell me what you did. Just confess your sins like we did before the sermon. Confess your sins to me and I will give you forgiveness. I will let you know that your sins are going to be hidden in Christ. He doesn't swallow him up in the world. He doesn't open the earth up and and watch Cain plummet into hell. He doesn't take lightning and strike him there dead on the spot. No, he talks to him. God seeks him out. He comes to him. He asks him questions. And even when Cain spits in his face and says, I don't know where my brother is, you go find him. And and the Lord comes again and he talks to him. Where, where, Where sin increases, Grace increases all the more. Look at verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. This is the punishment that God gives to Cain. He doesn't remove salvation from him. He doesn't close heaven to him. What does he do? He says, you're not going to be a good farmer anymore. He says, you're going to have to work hard and look hard to get food. Where sin increases, their grace increases all the more. God could have done anything to him, but he gave him a punishment that tried to get him to, tried to get Cain to despair of himself, to realize, you're right, all the power that I had to bring forth food from the ground, it's not mine, it's God. All the power that I had to, to live and be, it, it comes from God. This punishment was to do one thing, it was to turn Cain back to God. Where sin increased, their grace increases all the more, and yet what does Cain do? He whines. He complains. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. 
anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He had time. He had time of grace and God didn't cut it short. God gave him more time by putting a mark on him that would preserve his life, that would give Cain a life that he could live and enjoy and ultimately turn back to God. And yet note who left whose presence. Cain left. Cain left God's presence because even as sin increased, God's grace increased all the more. He put a mark on Cain that tried to save Cain's life, but Cain left. When God came to Cain, and we don't know how that looked, and asked him, are you your brother's keeper? He not only failed to be his brother's keeper, Cain failed to be a child of God. But if you read on, in this chapter, just the next couple of verses will tell you how, how God gave a gift to Adam and Eve, a son named Seth, who would replace Abel. But even, even more than sending that son, what God really did was send another brother, another brother who would be a good older brother to not only Abel, but to all of the children of Cain, all of the times you and I acted like children of Cain. You know, God sent another brother from heaven, a brother who ironically would suffer the same fate as Abel. His blood will be, was be spilt into the ground. And yet the difference between this Abel, though there are many, the difference between this Abel and this new brother was that he knew it was coming. He walked out into the field knowing that his own people, his own flesh and blood, his own brothers would kill him. And yet he did it willingly. You know I'm talking about Jesus Christ. You know I'm talking about our older brother who willingly went out into the field, who willingly suffered that, that torture and pain and, and the bloodshed. Why? So that now when his blood cries out from the ground, it doesn't cry out in a way that seeks vengeance. It cries out in a way that gives mercy. Because as you and I stand before our God, as sons and daughters of Cain, who have gotten angry and caused pain and the picture of God's family to fall apart in our own lives, we have our older brother next to us who says, look, my blood covers them. My blood washes them. My blood makes them new. My blood makes them pure. My blood makes them holy. And God says, you're right. Through the waters of baptism, I put a sign on their heads and I put a sign on their hearts. Just like God did for Cain, he put a sign on you that spares your life, that gives you life, that spares his wrath. It is the son of the daughter of the Most High God. He puts the sign of the cross on your head and on your hearts. And now you're no longer a Cain. No longer are you suspect and susceptible to that anger, to that to that beast crouching at your door, but you're an able. You're, you're an able who is good, an able who is able to bring offerings to the Lord that are good and pleasing. And, and as an able, well, you're able to do certain things. 
you're able to do certain things as you stand in the grace of God. And the first one is this. You're able to look at anger and make it sit and make it stay. Standing in the power of our God, standing in the grace of the God, having Christ in you means that you can look and acknowledge anger for what it is. It is a sin that wants to jump, it wants to pounce, and it wants to destroy you. But you can tell that cat to sit and stay and make it a fraidy cat by closing the door on it and telling them that I live in Christ and Christ lives in me. No longer do you have the power to destroy, but here in the love of Christ I stand. And also, perhaps greatest of all, God's grace and standing in it means that you are able to smile. You're able to smile for God's family photo of your family. You know, inevitably, as, as we've talked through this sermon and, and we've thought about all of the ways that we've, we've sinned against the fifth commandment, getting angry at our children, getting angry at our brothers and sisters, our, our husband or our wife, Inevitably, you know, smiles left. You feel bad about that brokenness that you've caused in the picture of God's picture-perfect family. But it's repentant faith. The faith that, that Cain wasn't able to muster because he had hardened his heart against God that you can. It's a repentant faith that looks to God and does exactly what what. God wants you to do when he comes to you and says, what did you do? And you can look at him and tell him, I'm sorry, I, I deserve only your wrath and punishment. But he tells you that in repentant faith, I give you my powerful grace. And so that you can stand with a smiling face and know that Christ's forgiveness means the ideal picture is a real picture of your family in Christ. Amen.